0: We'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. A couple of years ago, about 4% of Americans identified themselves as definitely being atheists. Another 5% are agnostic. They're not committing one way or another to the existence of God. It's worse in Europe. 8% in the UK all the way to 25% in the Czech Republic deny the existence of God. But to our ears, those numbers sound low, don't they? Why do they sound low? Well, they sound low to us because practical atheism is clearly abundant. For years, we've said that if Roe versus Wade was ever repealed, which it just was recently, that that wouldn't change a single heart. As a matter of fact, what we've seen statistically is that our nation now has more people who believe that abortion is okay than did before the repeal of Roe versus Wade. We now have the highest percentage in our history of people who believe that murder in the womb is not only okay, but a a human right, ironically. As of June, 60% in our nation now believe that abortion is morally sound. That's practical atheism. When someone says they believe in God and yet they act as if God doesn't exist and won't hold them accountable for their sin, they're atheists. Every generation of believers has seemed to be appalled at the lack of faith around them. In fact, listen to this pastor commenting on atheism. It's a long comment, so I'm going to paraphrase it. He said, we now have more atheists in our time than at any time in history. And now men not only think in their hearts that God doesn't exist, they say it openly and they brag that their consciences aren't worried about God. That sounds like it was written yesterday. That was written by the eminent English Puritan pastor Stephen Charnock in 1682. Here's what he said, actually. The swarms of atheists are more numerous in our times then history records to have been in any age when men will not only say it in their hearts, but publish it with their lips and boast that they have shaken off those shackles which bind other men's consciences. You see, the Bible gives no man the luxury of thinking he can make an intellectual decision to believe or not believe in God, or to live life as if God doesn't exist. The third Hebrew word in the Bible is God. The name of God, Yahweh, occurs 6,800 times in the Old Testament. And the New Testament begins with the coming of the long prophesied Messiah, Matthew 1, verse one, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. And we're not even the chapter into the New Testament when we read Matthew 1, beginning in verse 22. Now all this took place in order that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means, say it together, God with us. The world is living on borrowed time. Because not only is it completely illogical to deny the existence of God, and not only is it insane and foolish to live as if there is no God, but the greatest evidence of all of the existence of God is right before us that God visited the earth as a man. And he stayed for quite some time. He stayed for 33 years, he stayed for a third of a century. That is enough time to see God. And so Matthew's gospel here gives us highlights and important scenes from the ministry of Jesus Christ God with us, Emmanuel. And as we saw last time, the entire overall theme of Matthew is the kingdom of God ruled by the King, the Son of God. In fact, our first series in Matthew that we're going to walk through, Matthew's chapter, Matthew chapters 1 through 4, I'm calling the first coming of King Jesus. We're going to highlight various aspects of the coming of the King to present himself to Israel. But one more time, before we begin our trek verse by verse through chapter 1, Given that all of Matthew cries out for the existence of God, but more importantly gives us a record of the earthly ministry of Emmanuel, God with us, I want to do a flyover of Matthew's gospel to look at the ministry of the king. And what we're going to see is that the ministry of the king revealed in Matthew is a progression of sorts. There is a a, a progress, there is a, a moving forward, there's a development And that development is of a spiritual battle. And these battle lines are now being drawn concerning the kingdom of God. The ministry of Jesus starts off by just generally lumping everybody into one category. All the people interested in Jesus. We're all in the same category. Those interested in the king. Those interested in the kingdom. But throughout the gospel, what we're going to see is that a division into two types of people becomes increasingly clear. Those who will love and follow the king and those who will hate and revile the king. So I'm going to outline this progression in five parts, five steps in the progression, which which ends with loyalties being clear, divisions well established, going from everyone lumped into one category to two clear divisions. And just an interesting structural note here concerning these five parts of the progression Each one of these parts contains first a section which is a story or a narrative. It describes events. Now these events also include the the speeches of Christ. But then each of the parts has a sermon section or a discourse section. So each of the five parts of the progression consists of a story section followed by a sermon section. And that happens five times over. And I'll point these out as we go. So let's begin through this progression here. The first part of this spiritual progression... We'll label this, everyone hears the call of the king. Everyone hears the call of the king. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew 1 and 2 contains the introduction to the book. It describes the qualifications of Christ, the birth of Christ, his escape to Egypt, followed by his return to Nazareth to grow up as a true human boy. And then beginning in chapter 3, the beginning of the call of the king goes out. And it goes out to all who will hear. As I mentioned, this begins first with a story section, this part, which is everyone hears the call of the king. Chapter 3, verse 1, now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah, the prophet saying the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Immediately, the herald of the coming king, called by God and predicted prophetically in Isaiah 40, he gets right to the heart of the message. And the message is, the kingdom of God is on its way, and the only way to enter that kingdom is to repent of sin and rebellion and believe on the king. John was baptizing people in the river Jordan. This was a baptism of repentance, of preparing to meet the king and savior, and already... John the Baptist is calling to all who would hear, anyone. And he's warning him that the king will eventually divide people. Those who repent and those who do not. Chapter 3, verse 11. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. Here's the division. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Some people will be immersed, baptized in the Holy Spirit and the rest will be immersed, baptized in fire at the coming judgment. Just to be certain that the message to all people is clear, John the Baptist already places Jesus in the position of the future judge. Chapter 3, verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now Jesus begins the the process of identifying with sinners that he came to save and he humbly submits to the waters of baptism, not as a sinner, but as one being ordained for the beginning of his ministry and as one who receives the official stamp of approval from his heavenly Father and empowering for ministry by the Holy Spirit. And so he, he... Uh, It comes as one who identifies with the sinner, but not as a sinner. Right after this, chapter 4, verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, the temptation of Jesus has so many important functions, one of which we mentioned last time, and that is to, to prove that Jesus will succeed in all the ways that Israel failed. So that he can be the perfect Israelite to represent God's people to God and, and God to God's people. The temptation of Jesus proved that Jesus in his humanity could walk perfectly in the power of the Spirit. That it also demonstrated his power as God. And that if anyone was to have hope of conquering the power of Satan, that hope can only be in Christ. There's no other way to conquer Satan. And in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, it happens Not in Jerusalem, where the center of of Judaism resided, but in and around his hometown and the area of northern Galilee, the northern territory of Galilee, rather. And the story of his ministry in Galilee is summarized by the content of his preaching. It's the same message as John the Baptist. Chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's, He's offering this to everyone who will hear. An open message A clear pathway to heaven. And Jesus begins gathering his future apostles. He begins healing every disease, every affliction. No one is turned away. Chapter 4, verse 24. And the news about him spread throughout all Syria. And they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. The door to the kingdom of Christ is open to all. And the message at this point is one of invitation and demonstrating how glorious it is to follow the king. And now in this first major part of Matthew, we go from story to the sermon. That cycle that will happen five times throughout the gospel. And Jesus sits down on the mountainside, verse two of chapter five, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them. And then he goes through the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the lowly, and so forth. Who is he teaching here? Verse one says his disciples came to him. Now, we might think, well, that must mean he's just teaching his his 12, or or that's who he's primarily talking to. But it's a mistake to restrict the term disciples just to the few that he had chosen, or even to the many who eventually would faithfully follow him. At this point, disciples simply speaks of anyone willing to hang around and listen to him. A learner, a listener. And we can show this by reminding ourselves that after the feeding of the 5,000, And Jesus rebuking this crowd the next day for not wanting him, for for just wanting him to do things for them. John 6 verse 66 says, After this many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So the big question for this first major sermon is, in fact, some consider this the singular highest level interpretive question for the entire New Testament. The big question is, who is he speaking to? Who is this sermon directed to? Is he speaking to believers, to true disciples? Or is he speaking to those yet to believe? Is he speaking to those who will turn their back on him? Well, the best answer is yes, all of the above. Part of what makes the Sermon on the Mount such an enigma is that Jesus is, on the one hand, giving clear kingdom ethics. He is giving descriptions of how kingdom citizens conduct themselves that some of them will even be persecuted for the name of Christ. He's clearly speaking to those who believe or who will believe. Look at chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. Verse 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. In chapter 6, he gives clear instructions on prayer that are clearly aimed at the true believer. Chapter 6, verse 5, he says, When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, meaning don't be like unbelievers. The end of chapter 6 is this beautiful, comforting section in which Jesus encourages kingdom citizens to stop worrying about what they'll wear, stop worrying about what they'll eat. He says, but seek first the kingdom, of God and his righteousness. Chapter 6, verse 33. He says, do not be anxious about tomorrow. He would never tell unbelievers to not be anxious about tomorrow. So on the one hand, Jesus is giving a description of what the righteousness of kingdom believers looks like. But on the other hand, he's very clearly warning the lost. Chapter 7, verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter through it. Enter by the narrow gate. This is an admonition to those who haven't entered. Those who aren't saved. He warns that unbelievers will look religious. Chapter 7 verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name did we not prophesy and in your name cast out demons and in your name do many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And in fact, the final illustration of the sermon, you know, as a preacher, preachers try to be kind of positive at the end. Jesus didn't do that. The final illustration of the Sermon on the Mount building your house on the rock of the Word of Christ versus building your, your house on the, the sand of the self-righteousness and unbelief of the lost, this is clearly presenting a choice, that there are two paths. And it's appropriate that at the end of his first sermon in Matthew, Matthew comments in chapter 7, verse 28, Now it happened that when Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. So, both the story section and the sermon section make an invitation to the kingdom obvious to all, open to all. There's a general open call to the gospel, a call to receive Christ by faith, by repenting of sin, and and looking to the kingdom, and believing on Christ. This is very far from some sappy, sentimental, churchy message like Jesus wants to be your best friend. Jesus is warm, he is inviting, but he's bluntly honest and he's bluntly clear. He ends his first sermon with this warning, chapter 7, verse 27. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. I mean, as a preacher, I just want to say, but let's put something positive at the end. He said, we're done. And he stopped talking. He's warm, he's inviting, but he's honest and he's clear. The first parts of this Spiritual progression, everyone hears the call of the king. Everyone's hearing the same thing. Sides aren't being taken yet. But the second part of this spiritual progression, faith in the king is necessary. Faith in the king is necessary. And now Jesus is not only going to prove his identity as the son of God with great miracles of power, but he's going to demonstrate In this second part, that faith in Him is necessary. You're not just descended from Abraham. You're not just in the right family. You don't just grow up in church. You must have personal faith. And in the story section of this second part, He demonstrates His power. And that to follow Him, you must have faith in Him. You must believe in who He is. We have a, a leper, hopelessly, terminally ill. He comes and confesses that he believes in Christ. Chapter 8, verse 1, Now when Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and was bowing before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And already, although Matthew is written first to a Jewish audience, as we saw last week, Already, Jesus is giving hints that faith is of infinite value and genetics of lesser value. Why? Because the next thing we see here happening in this story section is he heals the servant of a Gentile centurion, a Roman soldier. And you recall that Jesus offered to come heal this servant, but the centurion said to him that he believed Jesus to be so powerful that he need only say the word and from a distance this servant would be healed. And you recall what Jesus said, chapter 8, verse 10. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone where? In Israel. He's beginning to show that he's going to turn outward. Jesus continued healing many. But now Jesus begins to demonstrate that faith in the king is necessary and that this faith means following Jesus at all costs. Chapter 8, verse 18 Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then the scribe came and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus challenges him. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. He's drawn a line in the sand. Either you suffer with me or you don't follow me. Jesus uses the situation of a storm to make a call to great faith while in a boat on a stormy sea. Jesus fell asleep, but the disciples in the boat, they they woke him up and they said, Save us, Lord. Chapter 8, verse 26. This was my favorite verse in the Legacy Standard Bible so far. And he said to them, Why are you so cowardly, you men of little faith? I love that. You men of little, what? Faith. Jesus came to the country of the gatherings on, the, on one shore of the Sea of Galilee and after casting multiple demons out of two demon-possessed men, you would think that this would cause great faith on the part of the witnesses, but the seeds of unbelief are already starting to show. And instead of this supernatural, spectacular display of power causing a spiritual revival, what happens? Verse 34 of chapter 8 and behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. Oh, good, you say. And when they saw him, they pleaded with him to leave their region. Right after this, Jesus went back to the coastal city of Capernaum. He'd been staying there as his home base for some time now. And some people brought a paralyzed man to Jesus. Chapter 9, verse 2. And they, behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, seeing their faith. Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. From there, Jesus called Matthew from his tax collector's booth, simply saying, follow me. And Matthew had the faith to leave everything behind, to leave a fortune behind, to demonstrate faith by following Christ. A short time later, a synagogue ruler came and knelt before Jesus, asking Jesus to come because his daughter had just died. And on his way to the daughter, a woman with a chronic bleeding condition touched the hem of Jesus' garment and and, and was healed. And what did he say to her? Chapter 9, verse 22. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has saved you. After raising the dead girl to life, Jesus was walking and two blind men came begging for mercy. And Jesus asked them a faith question. Chapter 9, verse 28. And when he entered the house, the blind men came up to him and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord, believe. It's the same root word in Greek as faith. In verse 29, then he touched their eyes saying, It shall be done to you according to your what? Faith. But now the beginnings of opposition are starting to peek through. Chapter 9, verse 32. Now as they were going out, behold, a mute demon-possessed man was brought to him. And after the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying, he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. You know why they said that? Because they can't deny the miracles are real. They're seeing them happen. And all along this story section, what has Jesus been preaching? He's been preaching the kingdom. Chapter 9, verse 35. And Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And now, this second part of Matthew transitions for the second time now from story to sermon. And this time, his sermon is strictly for the 12 disciples. He's preparing them for a ministry training journey. They're about to go on. They're going to be preaching the coming kingdom. They're going to be healing the sick like Jesus has been doing. But he warns that some will have faith, but most will not. Chapter 10, verse 14. He says, Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you leave that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. He teaches the disciples that essentially to do the gospel ministry, you're going into enemy territory. Verse 16, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And the rest of his training sermon to the disciples is somber and it gives the cost of genuine faith in Christ. That they're not to fear death even though people will come after them. That they're going to be tortured and whipped for the sake of Christ, but they're to endure to the end. And that Jesus is bringing division. He's bringing an eternal choice to all people. Chapter 10, verse 38. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. The heat is turning up. The king is drawing a line in the sand that faith in him is at all costs. The first part of this spiritual progression everyone hears the call of the king. The second part faith in the king is necessary. The third part but the enemies of the king refuse to believe. But the enemies of the king refuse to believe. And once again, this part of Matthew begins with a story section. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now it happened that when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his twelve disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John, in prison, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for someone else? John the Baptist has been rejected, he has been arrested, and is in need of encouragement and confirmation of Christ's identity. Now, it could be that his imprisonment had caused some confusion, some doubt, and Jesus wonderfully encourages John. In verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Jesus gives a wonderful commentary on John but then he comments on the rejection of John and the rejection of himself and he exposes the hypocrisy of his critics. Chapter 11 verse 18 For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. You remember what John did? He ate bugs and and he just was out in the wilderness. He, He didn't do anything worldly whatsoever. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. Now he exposes the hypocrisy. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. And as further evidence of the refusal to believe that their king had come, Jesus curses the cities in which he'd been ministering. Verse 20, he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. And he denounces uh, Chorazin and Bethsaida and the city of Capernaum where he'd been living for a while. And yet in the midst of the refusal to believe the king, in the midst of the heat turning up, in the midst of division beginning, in the midst of his rejection being imminent, Jesus gives his glorious offer of salvation. We read it earlier this morning, But I wanted to hear it twice today. Chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But the refusal to believe in Christ, it ramps up even further Chapter 12, verses 1 through 21 contain two accounts concerning Jesus and the Sabbath. In the first account, he and his disciples picked heads of grain from some fields on the Sabbath day. Ready for this reason? They were hungry. Wasn't a big deal. But the Pharisees tried to accuse Jesus of breaking the law, but he refuted them from Scripture. And he declared that he himself is Lord of the Sabbath. It's sort of a reminder, hey, I do what I want anyway. I'm the one who invented this thing. But they refused to believe. In the second account of Jesus in the Sabbath, on the very same day, he healed a man with a withered hand. And I I looked up this condition. I can't pronounce the name of it, so I won't try. But it's a condition where a hand or both hands begins to wither and the nerves don't work and the muscles don't work and it becomes useless and becomes small. And you may have seen people with this condition. And he heals this man. His hand hand is whole. It's, It's working. And unbelievably... Instead of trusting in Christ, the Jews ask, is it even heal is it even illegal to do that on the Sabbath? That's ridiculous. And now the refusal to believe in Christ reaches a pinnacle, a peak because the leaders of Israel representing Israel officially reject him. Chapter 12 verse 22 Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. And all the crowds were astounded and were saying, Can this man really be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man does not cast out demons except by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. And in this particular instance, having attributed to Satan... The work done by the Holy Spirit, Jesus pronounces an eternal sentence on these leaders. Chapter 12, verse 30. He who is not with me is against me and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit... It shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. That is terrifying. He just publicly said those leaders are going to hell, and I have just guaranteed it. And now the rejection of Jesus becomes obvious. Chapter 12, verse 28, they demand a sign. They demand to see Jesus do miracles. He's, he's been doing thousands of miracles already. Verse 38, rather. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered and said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He's already done thousands. He already said that dead people are being raised, the sick are being healed, demons are being cast out. And so while Jesus was speaking to the crowds in response to the leader's demand for a sign, someone came to him and said that his mother and brothers were waiting to speak to him boy talk about taking the air out of a great sermon time you know your mom is here jesus well he uses it as a teaching time he makes a pronouncement that if you want to be part of his kingdom if you want to be part of his family your family relations have nothing to do with that that there must be faith chapter 12 verse 50 for whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven He is my brother and sister and mother. That's the story section. And now in the sermon section, Jesus responds to the fact that his enemies are refusing to believe in him and his message changes. The content doesn't change. The delivery method changes. When he first began preaching, he's open and clear to everyone. He's he's calling out, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But now... Chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And large crowds gathered to Him. So He got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And He spoke many things to them in parables, saying... All of a sudden, He starts telling stories. All of a sudden he begins to speak mysteriously. Little stories to tell truths about the kingdom. He's still preaching the same content, the kingdom, but now in a different way. He tells the parable of the soils that shows that only a few who hear the gospel will actually respond. He tells the parable of the tares or the the weeds among the wheat, showing that unbelievers will infiltrate the company of the believers until they're separated out at the end of the age. He tells the parable of the mustard seed showing the guaranteed growth of the kingdom of God like the growth of a mustard seed into a huge tree. He tells the parable of the leavened bread which parallels the account of the mustard seed in that it pictures a woman taking a little bit of last week's bread which then permeates the whole new loaf, the flourishing of the kingdom. He tells the, the, the parallel, uh, parables of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price indicating the priceless value of entering the kingdom of God. He tells the story, the parable of the dragnet, catching all kinds of fish, both good and bad, which are then separated. And at the end of the age, the unrighteous will be separated out for judgment. Now, why was Jesus telling these parables now? Chapter 13, verse 10. Same question the disciples had. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Why would they ask this question? First of all, they asked the question because this was a total shift in the way he was speaking. He had been teaching openly. And Jesus answered and said to them, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. What does that tell us, by the way? If you're going to know the things of God, it's because God decided you're going to know. Verse 12. For whoever has to him more shall be given and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables because while seeing they do not see, while hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Do you understand what he's saying here? He's saying that no one who heard these parables will ever be able to stand before God and say, I didn't hear the truth. Yes, you did. You just didn't understand it. You just didn't believe it. The parables reveal the kingdom to those who will believe and it conceals the kingdom from those who refuse to believe. And then this section ends by recording a trip to his hometown of Nazareth. Chapter 13, verse 53. Chapter 13, verse 53. Now it happened that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there and he came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue. The first part of our spiritual progression, everyone hears the call of the king. The second part, faith in the king is necessary. The third part, now, but the enemies of the king refuse to believe. And the fourth part, now hearts are revealed by the king. Now hearts are revealed by the king. We're going to see people for who they really are. The entire story section of this fourth part of Matthew gives various responses to the king. And now, sides are being taken. Hearts are being revealed. The hearts of those in his hometown of Nazareth are are sadly revealed. Chapter 13 at the very end, verse 57. And they were taking offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Well, with the beheading of John the Baptist in chapter 14, verses 1 through 12, now clearly sides are being taken. This is a sad and grievous day for Jesus. Chapter 14, verse 13. Now when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. And when the crowds heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when he went to shore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. And then this is the famous episode recorded in all the Gospels where Jesus fed 5,000 men plus their wives and children, probably 20,000, 30,000 people with the miraculous use of the loaves and the fish. But as you read the account in Matthew, there's something about it that leaves you a little dissatisfied. It leaves you a little bit kind of flat. It's not that it wasn't a phenomenal miracle, but Matthew really doesn't offer much commentary on the miracle. He just comments on it and then moves on. It does serve the purpose of proving and continuing to prove the king's credentials and his power and his deity. But we could speculate that Matthew doesn't give much comment because there's something else we would learn in John's gospel. And that is that almost the entire crowd that Jesus fed abandoned him the next day. Chapter 14, verse 22. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. And after he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already many stadia away from the land, being battered by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. And here, uh, Peter famously takes the literal step of faith to walk on water with Jesus But his faith failed almost immediately and Jesus rebuked him for his lack of faith. And so Jesus and Peter got into the boat. Verse 32 of chapter 14. And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are truly God's son. Really? After all this time, after the countless miracles, after walking on water... Well, we've decided you are the Son of God. (laughs) Chapter 15, verse 1. Then some Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Let me point something out. By now the disciples have gone out on preaching trips, and these men have been healing the sick and raising the dead. And the Pharisees say, They didn't wash their hands before they ate. They broke the law. The leaders are completely revealing their hearts. They're totally external religious men. And the king exposes them. Chapter 15, verse 7. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commands of men. And then, I love this, right in front of the scribes and Pharisees. Verse 10 After Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth. This defiles the man. The disciples talked to Jesus privately after this, and I'll just paraphrase. They told him, Boy, you made those guys mad. Jesus told his disciples, Separate yourselves from them. Separate yourselves from those leaders. They're blind guides, they're worthless, they're useless. But Peter wanted an explanation of this illustration about what enters the mouth. And so Jesus explains, and his explanation deals with, guess what? With the heart of mankind. Chapter 15, verse 17. Do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and goes into the sewer? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile the man. That verse is often quoted by six-year-old boys if they knew where to find it. <laughs> but now, in contrast to the leader's of the Jews who had the word of God and they should have known that their king was among them and they knew that the whole issue of the internal faith of the heart. This wasn't a new thing. This isn't a New Testament concept. This isn't some original idea with Jesus. The Old Testament, God calls them to be circumcised of heart. But now he gives a contrast Jesus interacts with a lowly Canaanite woman who was bowing down before him begging for mercy for her demon-possessed daughter and to demonstrate not only that his first mission was to Israel, but also to demonstrate the heart of true faith. Jesus goes along with a foreordained event that happens here. Chapter 15, verse 23. The woman has asked for mercy, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and were pleading with him, saying, send her away, because she keeps shouting at us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and was bowing down before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And Jesus was setting up eternally for this moment. But she said, Yes, Lord, but even the dog's feed on the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, Oh, woman, your faith is great. It shall be done for you as you you wish. Don't think that he was being mean to her. He was setting up for that moment because you know who else are the dogs that lick the crumbs from the table? Us. We are. And from there, Jesus was healing multitudes of people and their hearts are being revealed. Chapter 15, verse 31, So the crowd marveled as they saw the mute speaking, the cripple restored, and the lame walking and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. They gave God glory. Their hearts are revealed. Once again, Jesus has the opportunity to compassionately feed a large crowd, this time 4,000 men besides women and children. But something was different about this crowd. What was different about them is that they were Gentiles. What was this indicating? It was showing that Jesus is reaching out to all men that as Israel pushed him out, as Israel rejected him, he would go to the Gentile. But once again, here come the leaders. This time a group of Pharisees and Sadducees, and this is very telling because these are two groups that basically didn't like each other. But they came united against Christ. Chapter 16, verse 1, And the Pharisees and Sadducees came testing Him. They asked Him to show them a sign from heaven. And He rejects them by basically saying, If you haven't figured it out by now, you never are going to. They're purposefully rejecting Him. This is not ignorance. This is willful rejection. And He warns the disciples that the Pharisees and Sadducees spread evil like yeast spreads in bread dough. And the theme of revealing hearts continues as Jesus questions is uh, questioning his disciples rather. Chapter sixteen, verse thirteen. Now, when Jesus came in the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, saying, "Who do people say that the Son of Man is?" Jesus never asked simple questions. There are always difficult questions. And they said, some say John the Baptist and others, Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Phew, safe answer. I quoted the Bible and and I quoted some things I, I think were okay. That wasn't his point. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Oh, and in this glorious moment, Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus pronounces a blessing on Peter and he affirms that to have that knowledge, it had to be revealed by God the Father. And Peter's true heart is revealed that he is a follower of Christ. But Peter is a sinful, not yet spirit-indwelt follower of Christ. Because in the very next scene, Peter revealed his ignorance that he still doesn't get the reason Christ came to earth. Chapter 16, verse 21, And from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Boy, in a span of a half dozen verses, Peter goes from blessed are you to get behind me, Satan. Didn't take long. But the question that might be asked as we've seen the hearts of people reveal from different angles. Okay, we've been talking about hearts, but what is the evidence of a heart turned to Christ? And Jesus answers this question. Chapter 16, verse 24 Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That the true believer gives up his life, he surrenders all that he has. He becomes a slave of Christ. He denies himself even to death. That's what taking up his cross means. Taking up your cross does not mean having a big electric bill. Taking up your cross does not mean you had a flat tire yesterday. Taking up your cross does not mean dealing with a difficult person. In the New Testament, taking up your cross only means dying. Jesus said, you want to come after me, you die. You die to yourself. By the way, this is an early teaching on the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. That the heart of the true believer is revealed when he takes up his cross and perseveres all the way to death. Well, now chapter 17 shows us one of the most glorious scenes in all the Bible. Jesus is miraculously transfigured briefly in the glorified version of of himself. He's appearing with Moses and Elijah. Peter, James, and John are witnesses to this glory And I would imagine quite disappointed when Jesus said this in chapter 17, verse 9. And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. There isn't a cork big enough to keep a mouth from opening about this, but they obeyed. But again, Jesus reveals the wicked hearts of those who would refuse to believe when the disciples asked him a theological question in verse 10, his disciples asked him, saying, Why didn't the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but, to him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Now, right after this, Jesus' disciples failed to be able to cast out a demon uh, from a boy. And Jesus rebukes them for their tiny faith. And he's showing them that they need to believe fully and totally in the king. And that brings us now to the fourth major teaching section, the, the sermon section in this part of Matthew. Now, remember, Peter, James, and John were the sole witnesses, the only witnesses to the glorified Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. And right before Jesus told them not to tell anybody, I can imagine that they were kind of hitching up their robes, getting ready to run to see who could be the first one to go tell everybody, guess what I saw? And it wouldn't be out of the realm of possibility for the three of those men to be saying, you know, we must be pretty special. We're the only ones who saw that. Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Translation, am I going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He didn't directly answer their question. Instead, verse 2, he called a child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Do You realize, by the way, that little boy set him before them. That little boy is somebody you're going to meet in heaven. Yep, that was me. I was the one. I was the illustration. What does a child bring to the king? A child brings to the king nothing except helplessness and a need for grace. So it's becoming increasingly clear that the heart is the key to the kingdom. That attitude which truly hates sin, which truly is like chapter 18, verse 8, That if your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the eternal fire. That asks us the question, do I hate my sin and do I love my Savior? And in fact, Jesus shows the disciples that the heart of a true believer hates his sin and desires holiness Chapter 18, verse 15. Now, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. I think we most often place ourselves in that particular verse in the position of the confronter, of the gentle confrontation, that I'm the one doing the confronting. Could I say this? Instead, place yourself in the place of the one being told he has sinned. He's sinned. The true believer responds by listening. It's a test of the heart. But if there's a refusal to listen to a confrontation over a clearly defined sin, now there may be an indication of a heart issue. Verse 16, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he, listens, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as the Gentile and the tax collector. That now if someone says they're a believer and yet they won't respond to even the correction of the whole church. His heart has been revealed and he's to be treated as if he is an unbeliever. No one but God knows the heart, but the true believer yearns for holiness at the heart level. You know what a believer says when he's confronted with sin? A believer says, thank you. Well, Jesus continues preaching on the genuine heart of the true believer. He tells a parable about forgiveness, that the man who was forgiven much but then refused to forgive a little reveals his true heart. Chapter 18, verse 34, the very end of the chapter. This is the end of the story. And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My Heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your what? Hearts. And now this section comes to an end. Chapter 19. Now it happened that when Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Here's our progression. Everyone hears the call of the king. Faith in the king is necessary. But the enemies of the king refuse to believe. Now hearts are revealed by the king. Here's the fifth part. Sides are taken for and against the king. Sides are taken for and against the king. Remember I told you everyone starts in the same pot, but eventually they divide. As we begin the fifth major story section in Matthew, now we see that declarations of loyalty are made clear that mankind is clearly divided into those who willfully reject Christ and those who joyfully receive Christ. Chapter 19 opens with the wicked, lustful, womanizing Pharisees asking Jesus this question. Chapter 19, verse 3 Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And Jesus exposes their wicked, hardened hearts against God and against His Word. And then He gives the contrast. Chapter 19, verse 13. Then some children were brought to Him so that He might lay His hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to Me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And after laying his hands on them, he departed from there. By the way, what was he doing laying his hands on them? He was guaranteeing the salvation of each and every one of those children. Jesus exposes their wicked hearts of the Pharisees and then gives that contrast. Then we flip back to another contrast. A rich young ruler asked Jesus a question. Chapter 19, verse 16. Teacher, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? And you know the story. Ultimately, the young man revealed his heart. He said that he does keep the law. And Jesus said, great, do one more thing. Give away everything you have. It's not that you get saved by giving away your wealth. It's that he needed to reveal his true heart, and he did. We see that the young man loved his wealth more than he wanted to follow Christ. And by contrast, the exact opposite, Peter speaks for the disciples In chapter 19, verse 27, then Peter answered and said to Him, Behold, we have left everything and followed You. What then will there be for us? And Jesus affirms that the kingdom doesn't work the way that the world does. Chapter 19, verse 30, but many who are first will be last and the last first. And then in chapter 20, it tells a long parable explaining that God will bless with salvation whomever He chooses, in whatever timing He chooses, and that some will come to the kingdom last and they'll be treated like they're first. And yet, sadly, once again, in chapter 20, beginning in verse 20, revealing their ignorant and selfish hearts, James and John send their mommy to go ask Jesus if they could be first in the kingdom. James and John affirmed that they would suffer right along with Jesus. We'll be there with you. We'll suffer with you. And Jesus said, yes, actually you will. And he illustrated the first and last principle with James and John. James would be the first apostle to die for his faith and John would be the last apostle to go home to heaven. At the end of chapter 20, sides are still being taken. A huge crowd who apparently thought that they were worthy of Jesus. They get indignant, they get impatient with two blind men who did not think they were worthy of Jesus. Jesus ignores the indignant crowd and was moved with compassion for these lowly blind men and he healed them. And now sides are being taken at a rapid pace. We come now to the beginning of the Passion Week. Beginning in chapter 21, Jesus rides toward Jerusalem on a donkey, presenting himself to the people as their king, and many shout praises. But then Jesus comes to the temple and he sees the false worshippers using the temple courtyard to make money. Then he cleanses the temple. The chief priests and the scribes rebuke Jesus for receiving worship from children, showing that they would never worship Christ themselves. His authority is challenged and in a a series of parables he gives a scathing rebuke to the leaders of Israel. He says, you are murderers who are going to kill the Son of God. He calls them false believers who will not be in attendance at the kingdom banquet of heaven. And in chapter 22 he uses the scriptures to destroy the arguments of the wicked leaders. And finally in chapter 23 he denounces the leaders of Israel. He pronounces curse after curse after curse seven of them against them. And Jerusalem has now shown her true heart. She has rejected her king. Chapter 23, verse 37. The very end of chapter 23, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you did not want it. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Eschatologically speaking, that will happen right before the return of Christ and not before. And now in the final major sermon section of Matthew, Jesus preaches on the Mount of Olives to his disciples and he teaches them basic eschatology, basic end times theology, which can be summarized like this. The king is coming back And this time he comes in judgment. He will reward the righteous and he will punish the wicked. And he will condemn them to death and execute them on the spot. We could summarize this sermon at the very end of chapter 25, verse 46. Chapter 25, verse 46. The last verse in chapter 25. This is the summary of his point. Remember we said that sides are being taken the last verse of this final sermon, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. That's the progression of the Gospel of Matthew. Everyone hears the call of the king. Faith in the king is necessary, but the enemies of the king refuse to believe. Now hearts are being revealed by the king and sides are taken for and against the king. And in chapters 26 and 27, of course, the false leaders of Jerusalem finally take their wicked intentions all the way and they murder their own king. But this was all for the redemptive purposes of God, was it not? Because those who would follow Christ still had a sin problem. And this sin needed to be paid for and God accomplished this payment with the death of His Son 53 days after the death of Christ. Peter, now filled with the Holy Spirit, Preach to the men of Israel in Acts 2. He said, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and sign, wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. The God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held. In its power. You see that the spiritual battle lines drawn in the gospel of Matthew still exist today. The biggest question that will ever confront any human being is what will you do with Jesus? Which side will you be on? Because all people in the gospel of Matthew proves this. Start off in one category. People. People. And they end up in two categories. Just as he ended his final sermon in Matthew, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. What will you do with Jesus? Can I tell you this? Atheism is a temporary phenomenon because there will be a day when all creation acknowledges the Son of God in the two categories they will acknowledge the son of god unto judgment or they will acknowledge the son of god unto life it's the only question really worth asking what will you do with jesus because in the coming age the statistics will read like this 0% atheists let's pray our father we thank you for this time and your word this gospel is spectacular and it gives us a definite call to examine our own hearts and while the gospel is written primarily to, to believers to affirm them in their faith, Lord, the, the gospel call is clear and the, the divisions, the, the, the line between the lost and the saved, very clear. We would ask you in our own midst, Lord, through our time in the gospel, of Matthew, as we begin this journey together, we would ask you to save many souls, to save many, to save our children, to save adults, to save people's parents and grandparents. And that through this gospel, through the call to the kingdom of Christ, we would see many kingdom citizens brought forward. We praise you and we thank you in Christ's name. Amen.